Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Melanie Crowder, author of multiple YA and middle grade books and a fellow 2013 debut. Melanie joined me today to talk about the pain of rejection and how to view it as a learning experience that can help you become stronger. The first thing I talk to my guests about is your querying process, because a lot of the listeners are aspiring writers and they're in the query trenches themselves or about to go there. And it's a really daunting place as those of us who have been there know. So tell us about your query process and your agent hunt. I really did not know what I was doing when I first got started. I had written two manuscripts and just went to the library and got that book, whatever it is, Writer's Market or something. The Writer's Market Guide to Agents. Yeah. So I went and huh? I got that, sent a blast of queries to people. But the problem was I really didn't know what I was doing as far as writing went yet. The manuscripts were a mess. I had no idea how to revise. And so wasn't successful. And I decided pretty quickly that I really wasn't interested in being bad at this. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I thought, okay, all right, what I love learning. So I was like, okay, I'll go back to school. So I went and got an MFA at Vermont college. And during those two years, I didn't query at all. I didn't go to any conferences. I wasn't online paying attention to all the awesome resources that are out there, like your blog. And I didn't plan on even learning that stuff until I graduated. But in my second to last semester, I entered this competition that was for students in my MFA program. You submitted 20 pages of a manuscript. And if you were the winner, then those 20 pages would land on the desk of an editor. I submitted and I won. And my professors said, oh, well, this has never really turned into anything before. Don't get your hopes up. Don't plan on this becoming a contract. It's just a really great opportunity for you to get some feedback. And so I set my expectations really low and still didn't think, oh gosh, I should probably go get an agent because I didn't think anything was going to come of it. I did a round of revision with the editor and then she said, okay, we're going to take this upstairs and we'll get a contract on this. And I was like, oh, whoa, (laughs) I'm not prepared for this. Very quickly, I turned around and sent out some queries and tried to get an agent with the looming contract. It's not a method that I recommend (laughs) because I knew I had this deadline. It was this really tight timeline and it was pretty stressful. Everything worked out well. I ended up signing with my agent who still is my agent today, Amy Joan Paquette at EMLA. The editor who was the very first editor who I ever worked with, we still work together. We're working on a duology that comes out in 2018 and 19 for middle grade readers. I just feel so fortunate. It was a mess the way that I fell into it, but it ended up really well for me. That is really rare. You are still with the same agent and the same editor. Yes, I am. I have a YA editor in addition to my middle grade editor. I work with two different editors. I work with Rekha Simonson on my middle grade books, and she's at Athenaeum, and she's amazing. I love working with her, and I'm so 
fortunate that my manuscript, my 20 pages found her because of that scholarship. It is a great example of an MFA program really providing a concrete opportunity because I have a lot of authors come on here that have had MFAs and they absolutely credit them with improving their writing and doing wonders for their skills, their knowledge of structure and craft. Mm -hmm. But they say, you know, in the end, it didn't actually help me get a foot in the door as far as publishing. But in your case, that's completely not true. You actually walked into publishing through the MFA door. That's true. And I also got all that other stuff, you know, the structure, the craft, the quality of my writing shot up astronomically. When I think Mm -hmm. back on those manuscripts that I had submitted before the MFA, it's so embarrassing, like how bad they were. And I'm actually really glad neither of them were ever picked up. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I I talk to a lot of writers that feel similarly when I read my manuscripts that never got anywhere that I was bitter about. I'm now relieved and thankful for being rejected so roundly because they did not deserve to be published, first of all. But secondly, if they had been, they would now be an albatross around my neck. No one needs to read that. It's embarrassing now. Exactly. Exactly. Rejection, as painful as it is, it's a really important part of the writing process. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I know that that's hard to hear when you're in it. I remember being in it. Like you, I started out not really knowing what I was doing. And instead of being aware of my ignorance, I just threw myself in it. And I think that's why it took me so long. It took me 10 years to get an agent. And that was my own fault because I didn't want to do the research. I didn't want to learn about the process. I didn't want to learn about agents and the query process. I just wanted someone to love me, you know, and it was... (laughs) A lot of my early stumbling blocks I put in front of myself. That's something that I think is important. And yes, it hurts. Rejection hurts. But whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I know that that doesn't make people feel better, but I've actually found a better quote. And I forget the woman's name, but it's from a book called Women Who Run With Wolves. Highly recommended. Anyone who is listening, Women Who Run With Wolves. It's amazing. She has a wonderful quote in there that I have always remembered. She says, scar tissue is stronger than skin. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I like that better than what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because (laughs) it's a little more apt, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there are so many paths, so many paths to finding your editor and finding your agent. If I am giving advice to aspiring writers, I definitely don't tell them, oh, be completely ignorant and do it the way that I did it. By the same token, I'm so fortunate that I connected with the agent and the editor who I connected with that I wouldn't change my process at all. I wouldn't either if it worked out for me the way it did for you. I mean, that's a stroke of um, serendipity, I think. It is. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, that your advisor or your mentor even said, this doesn't usually turn into a contract. Don't get your hopes up. To which I would have just, like you, assumed nothing's going to come of it. But then to have things work out, obviously you had strong pages, but two, there are many forces at work there funneling you to the right place at the right time. Yeah, there is so much uh, about good fortune that has placed me where I am. I'm very lucky. You know, I have five books out now and I'm contracted through 2020. It is a ton of hard work. I, I studied hard. I worked hard to get where I am. But there's also this element of fortune that is so humbling. I just feel like everything came together at the right time for me. 
and I'm very lucky to be where I am. I feel similarly. I, I definitely owe my success to different sites online, like Agent Query Connect, Absolute Right, a few others, Writer's Digest, of course. I credit them most, especially Agent Query Connect, with teaching me the things I needed to know. But there is that element of uncontrollable forces. Timing is what people usually call it, but things that just come together. And when people ask me, how did it finally happen for you? The answer is, I got lucky. And I feel that way. Similarly, when it comes to there, and you know this as well as I do, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of undiscovered writers that are just as good as or if not better than you and I that have not had that timing, that luck, that fortune element kick in yet. And that's a hard thing to hear because it is an uncontrollable force. It's so hard. And what I tell myself and what I tell people when I encounter people like that conference critique that I'm giving or in a some kind of mentorship that I'm providing online is I tell them it's not about if you're going to get published. If you keep working, if you keep putting in the hours, if you keep being positive, it's when. It's when it's going to happen, not if. The negativity that is intrinsically involved with the query process, the self-doubt that becomes a major part of it, pushing through that is so hard, but it is absolutely necessary. Getting a rejection I still remember as soon as I got a rejection, I sent another one out there because that hurt had to be followed up with a little dose of hope. Wayne Gretzky said, you always miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. My dad loved to say that to me because I played sports and my dad loved to say that to me. He's like, if you don't shoot the ball, I played basketball. So if you don't shoot the ball or if you don't swing the bat, you're not going to make the basket. You're not going to hit the ball. If you just stand there, nothing's going to happen for you. And I always took that advice then in stride in a lot of things. I'm always trying to put things into motion because I do take that very seriously. And I took that seriously in querying as well. You're not going to get a yes or a request from a query you never sent. You got to put yourself out there, even though it's very emotionally vulnerable to do that. It's a necessary part of the process. Vulnerable is right. I was married when I was first querying, and I was very stressed when I got my first full request. This was back when you were mailing in your full request, and so you had money involved. You remember that? Oh, my God. So I printed my book. I go to Office Mac with a floppy disk because we didn't have USB drives and print it off my book. You wrap it in rubber bands, and you mail it. It's not cheap. Right. And then they don't send it back to you. (laughs) No, they don't send it back to you unless you include a self-addressed stamped envelope where you pay to have it sent back to you. It could cost you 20 bucks to send off your book and get a rejection. And I told my husband, I was so stressed after I sent out my first full and he was like, you should be happy. You should be excited. And I'm like, dude, I just put my soul in a box and I mailed it to New York. You are putting yourself out there. It is vulnerable, but that's the first step. It is. It is. Up next, Melanie speaks about the fuzzy area of writing for upper middle grade versus writing YA and tackling tougher subjects for that audience. Coming up after a word from our sponsor. An enemy to defeat, an alien to meet, a girl who's really sweet. It's not easy to be the new boy at school when the school's on a starship and you're the captain's kid. Enjoy hard sci-fi with a soft heart. The Captain's Kid, 
by Liz Coley. So you write middle grade and YA, and I want to talk about your middle grade novels right now. So those are Nearer Moon, Three Pennies, and Parched. The three of those are across a wide variety of topics, some of them kind of dark. Parched is definitely dark. Parched was my debut. It came out actually uh, the same year that your Not a Drop to Drink came out. And I think we were actually working in the same cloud of inspiration, the zeitgeist, because they're both slightly futuristic climate fiction. The opening scene is really devastating. It's this like gang warfare, running out of water setting. Not what you think of generally when you think of middle grade, but this is parched was upper middle grade, really targeting middle school kids and not targeting elementary school kids. So when it comes to that, you're writing for a very specific and kind of narrow age range. What kind of parameters do you have Either do you place upon yourself or are placed upon you when you're writing for middle grade when it comes to content in terms of language, violence, sex, etc. Especially when you're writing for upper middle grade because that can be a really fuzzy area. It really is a fuzzy area because you have some fourth graders that are reading these YA dystopian bloody things and then you have some very sensitive seventh graders who are not ready to move out of the younger middle grade set. So it's a really interesting age group to be writing for. And it's really up to the gatekeepers, to the teachers and librarians and parents to know this kid and to say, okay, what is this kid ready for? And then to hand them the books that are appropriate for their level. I think in middle grade, anything explicit is off the table. Definitely language. It's very hard for an elementary or middle school librarian to stock things for the younger set with language that the kids themselves aren't using yet (laughs) and they don't want them to be using. When it comes to violence, I think of books like my friend Skyla Brown's book, Kamina. She wrote a book about the Guatemalan Civil War and it's in verse. And verse has this elusive quality where You can be talking about something, you can be showing a scene where something really terrible is happening, but because of what you're saying in between the words and in between the lines, there's a lot that's felt and understood in a kind of atmospheric way, but it's not explicit. Another verse novel, Inside Out and Back Again, that's the Vietnam War. That's tough. That is really hard stuff to read about. But because it's written in verse, and Parched was kind of a spare vignette book, very short chapters, and it's the same kind of thing where you're saying things sort of in between the words that are actually on the page. So the reader understands it's not directly on the page explicitly spelling out what happens. I don't know if you've had this experience as a reader or if you've mentored young students and you've watched this happen, but sometimes you'll watch them read a passage and there will be something difficult happening in that passage and they will just miss it. It's almost like they're not ready for it. They don't even comprehend what's happening in that. I can think of some books that I read when I was young and I had no idea what was happening. And I read it as an adult and I go, whoa, how did I miss that? Sometimes there's self-protection in place when a kid just really isn't ready for something. You asked about language, violence, sex. When you think about sex, there's not going to be any explicit sex 
on the page, unless you're talking about a book like Sold, where it's about sex trafficking, the Patricia McCormick book. And again, that's the vignette style where there's this elusive quality and things are present, but they're not laid out explicitly on the page. Yeah, that's a great point. I do want to talk about verse novels here for a little bit, come back to the middle grade question. But okay, first of all, you mentioned quite a few verse novels. Another one I can think of is Out of the Dust by Karen Hess. Yes. Which has a girl accidentally burning her mother to death. Yeah. Her yep. mother is pregnant and she throws a grease fire out the door, not knowing her mother is standing on the other side of the door. And it's during the Dust Bowl and depression. And her mother catches fire. Her pregnant mother catches fire. And it is her fault. I mean, that is <laughs> as dark as it gets. That it's is. Awful. Yeah, it's true. One of the things that I love about middle grade is that middle grade is fearless when it comes to emotional truth. There may not be as much explicit violence or sex or drugs and rock and roll happening on the page, but the truth is that young people are tackling and wrestling with some really difficult issues in their lives. Young people are not saved from poverty, racism, sexism, homophobia, all the things that we face as adults, kids are dealing with those things too. Kids are dealing with homelessness, sexual assault. And so it's not about pretending like that world doesn't exist. It's about trying to figure out how can I, with a gentle, kind, protected lens, both help people who are going through those difficult things find a mirror for their life or to help people who have really no grasp of the kind of childhood that others are experiencing develop a little bit of empathy for what it's like to grow up always hungry, what it's like to grow up without a stable home, what it's like to grow up with parents who are dangerous and not there to protect you at all times. I agree that younger readers that are not ready to read between those lines simply will not comprehend it. I remember when I was in sixth grade, we read Julie of the Wolves in my English class. She is married at a young age, like an arranged marriage, and her husband attempts to rape her. Is not successful, if I'm remembering correctly, but he does try to rape her. I remember reading that chapter. And I was a little more mature, so I understood what was happening. And going into class the next day and thinking, how are we even going to discuss this? Like, I was a sixth grader, but I was like, man, this is going to be really uncomfortable, right? (laughs) My teacher, I remember, and now as an adult, I can just sympathize with that woman. (laughs) Yeah. And she was like, okay. And she's trying to talk about this. She's asking leading questions. She's trying to get people to talk about it. And I remember knowing that some of them were just so uncomfortable, they weren't going to bring it up. And some of them had no flipping clue what had happened in that scene. I was one of those kids who had no idea. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That scene went right over my head. And you do self-censor. And I think that it is interesting that you say that when you're writing... That you rely on the gatekeepers to put appropriate material in the hands of the kids that can handle it, but then also the kids have their own mental screening process. Gatekeepers have this really awesome opportunity to both gauge what a kid is ready for and also to 
push a kid beyond what they think they're going to like. So if you have a boy who says, oh, I just really only want to read books about sports. And I just really only want to read books about boys. And I just really only want to read the Rick Riordan books, things like that. The gatekeepers have this amazing opportunity to say, oh, so you like action and adventure. You're going to love this story, you know, by Tamara Pierce and really challenging people to get out of the boxes that have been put around them or that they've put themselves in. But they also have this opportunity to say, you know what? I think while this student is ready for this book, I think this kid, let's wait another year and let this kid get a little more mature before we hand this book to them. That's the truth. I can tell you, I worked in a high school library for 15 years and one point I've worked with everything from fifth graders through seniors out of the same room. So obviously there's a huge dichotomy there of what we have to offer and what we know people are ready for, not ready for. And even in high school, I had seniors that I knew couldn't handle certain things. And so I would tell them, I would be upfront with them. I would be like, this book has this, this, and this. Is that something you want to read? And they'd be like, oh, no, I'm not, I don't want to read about that. And I'm like, cool, no problem. Let's try this instead. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It is a wonderful opportunity and we do really enjoy the discoverability aspect when you turn a kid onto something that they didn't know they would love and then suddenly they're hooked. It's a wonderful feeling. I miss it. I miss it a lot, actually. Coming up, the power of writing for youth who are ready to change the world and Confucius didn't actually say that. Up next, after a word from a sponsor. Brandon Webb lives on the moon, his eyes on the stars and the colonized worlds out there. He couldn't be more excited for his first trip to outer space with his dad, captain of the starship Reliable. Supposedly, it's just a routine supply run to a failing colony. There must be a secret mission. Why else would a mysterious someone want Brandon and the voyage stopped at any cost? Read The Captain's Kid with Your Kid, ages 10 to 110, by Liz Coley. We're going to talk more about content here because I think it's a really great question when you're dealing with younger readers, no matter what their age. Many of your books deal with social issues. An uninterrupted view of the sky is set in the early 2000s in South America. Parched is in Africa somewhat in the future. It deals with, as you were saying, water shortages, much like my debut did. And Audacity, which is a verse novel is the true story of a female Jewish labor organizer. So when you're approaching these weighty topics, which we have talked about quite a bit, but I want you to talk more about the social aspect of it, the broader world implications that you're bringing to the younger readers. How do you go about making it familiar to them, places and situations that they probably have not experienced? My social justice themed books tend to be that one upper middle grade and then my YA. You know, I've already mentioned what I love about writing for middle grade. What I love about writing for the YA set is teens are just at this crossroads in their life. They're in this process of becoming. They're about to leave their parents' home and they're about to step out on their own. And it's, who am I going to be? What is going to be important to me? What am I going to care about? How am I going to change the world? And I feel like at that age, 
they're just so receptive and so ready to hear about how they can make a difference. None of us, no matter whether we're 18 or whether we're 40, nobody wants to feel like we're not having a positive impact in the world, like we're not Mm -hmm. changing the world for the better. But especially those teenage years, as they're just about to head off into a career or just about to head off into college, they're so ready to be inspired. I wrote Audacity about Clara Lumlex. She was a shirtwaist striker in the early 1900s. I wrote that book because she inspired me. I knew that if I had read a story about a young woman in her late teens and early 20s who was literally changing the world just by the force of her sheer determination, I knew that that would be incredibly meaningful to me. And then I wrote An Uninterrupted View of the Sky based on an experience that I had in my early 20s when I was in Bolivia. I was really put right up in front of my own government's actions around the world and the human cost. I was really forced to question, what's my role here? What's my job? What role do I have in what my government's doing? It's a really important question. And I feel like especially now, you know, we've got all these marches, we have all this political will, we have all these people stepping up and saying, okay, we need to be more participatory in our democracy. I feel like this is a really relevant and really important question right now. Our government has these domestic policies that affect people for positive or for ill, and then they have all these foreign policies as well. And how many of us know what our government's doing? in different places around the world. How much of us are aware and educated? Is it our job to be? Those are the kind of questions that I really wanted teen readers to grapple with. In order for my reader to get into late 90s Bolivia and to get into early 1900s, Lower East Side of Manhattan, I had to do a lot of work to make those very different lives than what current teenagers are living relevant. It was really a challenge. My editor and I, this is my YA editor now, we would go back and forth and back and forth with just a single scene to try to make it both impart the amount of information that a reader would need to be able to access that other world and also to make it not bogged down with too much explanation or too much descriptive text. And so it was really a balancing act. And those two books, we worked very, very hard on those books to make them accessible, relevant, and also a good story and a good read for teenagers. It was a real challenge and I loved it. You make a really good point about awareness, bringing younger readers into a larger awareness of their world, but also into our country's involvement in other countries and what role we have, if any, what we can do about these things. I think it's fascinating. I've been researching extensively about drug control. It's really interesting how greatly the U.S. affects other countries in their drug policies. That's exactly what Uninterrupted View of the Sky is about. It's about the U.S. war on drugs in the early 90s, what the policies that we exported and how that affected the indigenous population and how that Mm -hmm. affected the prison population and how that affected children and teens. 
It sounds like yeah. you and I have parallel brains in a way. <laughs> we I think we have do. stories with these inner resonances. That's awesome. <laughs> I think we do. That's really cool. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about, especially in South America, the almost in some ways guerrilla tactics on our country's side and the control across the world that they are exerting over policies in other countries that they don't necessarily need to be a part of. And it's been really interesting to me. I'm almost 40 and I'm learning these things. And so I think it's really interesting that you're bringing these hard concepts to young readers and and making them ask questions. That's what I keep hearing in my feedback from readers. How did I not know about this? How did I not know this was happening? I feel like that's got to be the first step if we're going to be a positive global power, not just a global power. The citizens have to be educated about policy and we have to learn from our mistakes. The things that I have learned through my independent research to write fiction that I have learned about reality has just been so eye-opening to me. And people ask me a lot about Not a Drop to Drink, which I'm sure you probably get similar questions about Parched, was part of your goal to bring the water issue into a greater public knowledge? And the answer is, yeah. I mean, it's important, guys. We're going to die if we don't get this under control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you can frame it in my book and in yours, too, in like an action-adventure kind of story— you can bring something interesting for them that they want to experience. And then at the same time, they go, huh. And so when I do school visits, I always open talking about my research when I'm doing Not a Drop to Drink. And I talk to them about the things that I learned and how alarming it was. I do the same thing with A Madness So Discreet because it deals with the treatment of the insane in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. I'll talk about these are all the things that happened to people. These are the things they did to people in the insane asylums. And everybody is horrified and they think it's awful. But at the same time, there's this veil of, well, that would have never happened to me because I'm not insane. And then I give them a list of reasons for incarceration in the trans-Allegheny asylum. It could be any of us. Right. And I put that up there and I show them. And I'm like, I want everybody to raise your hand when I say something that applies to you. And I usually have the whole room. It's always interesting. And then one of the reasons it's on the list is actually masturbation. If I'm missing one, I'll be like, all right, guys, masturbation. (laughs) And then it's like, oh, we got everybody. It's really interesting to me when you can bring issues, past issues or issues geographically very separate from the reader when you can bring it to their front door. I think readers expect when I'm presenting one of my historical novels, like An Uninterrupted View to the Sky or Audacity, they expect that I'm doing a ton of research with Parched, with a futuristic book or A Near Moon, which is fantasy or Three Pennies, which is contemporary. I think people think, oh, well, that doesn't involve any research. And it certainly is a lot less research. But in Three Pennies, for example, I fell down this whole rabbit hole of research for Confucius because my owl is Eastern philosopher. I have a point of view character who's an owl. In my original concept of the book, he was going to be a Confucius scholar and he was going to be quoting Confucius. And it was going to be the master said this, the master said that, quoting directly from the Analects of Confucius. 
Well, what I found when I went down this rabbit hole is that a lot of the things that you see online, <laughs> we know how valid online citations are. All sure. these quotes that you see online that are attributed to Confucius, well, they're not actually really? actually attributable to Confucius. And even the Analects of Confucius, which are supposed to be legit Confucius sayings, they're academically in question as to whether the actual really? person was writing them, whether it was students, whether it was a collaborative process. And so in the mm-hmm. end, I had to back up and say, okay, I'm not going to say that, that he's a Confucius scholar. What my owl is spouting is basically just wisdom. He's spouting proverbs. So I end up in my own mind, I refer to them as owlisms, but it's just amazing <laughs> like how much research goes into just the tiniest. I mean, that's maybe like 10 sentences in the whole book. But it was an amazing amount of research just to determine, okay, what do we need to cite here? Where does this quotation actually come from? And then to back away and say, well, they're just proverbs. There's really nothing to cite. When I was researching Not a Drop to Drink, I actually ended up reading an entire book about the history of water. And I learned a lot about contemporary water law. It's called Water, the Epic Struggle for Wealth, Power, and Civilization by Stephen Solomon. And it's a great book, but it's an academic book. And I learned so much about water law, contemporary water law, water rights, mineral rights. None of that is in the book. But I learned a lot about it. I kind of talk about it a little bit when I'm talking to people, usually when I'm in a library uh, setting and I'm talking to adults, I will tell them, you know, be aware of what your rights are on your own land. Because typically, depending on your state, and you're counting your township, but usually you do not own water that is under your land. You do not have the right to that. Yeah, we it actually be. just this past calendar year in Colorado, we just legislatively earned the right to collect rainwater off of our roofs because water rights yeah. are such a big deal in Colorado. The rain that lands on your property does not belong to you. Isn't that insane? It's insane. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that you learn tangentially while you're doing this kind of research and it can open up a whole new avenue for you, whole new conversations, a whole new element of reality that you can illuminate for others. Finally, the ability of sci-fi and fantasy to be more subversive than their counterparts, how difficult life can be for today's youth and why it's important to tell their stories. Let's talk about a nearer moon. Now, that one is middle grade, correct? Middle grade, yes. All right. And it is set in a fantasy world. So was that a nice escape for you as a writer, or did you find heavier themes were still pervasive in that? So it was really fun to write fantasy. Fantasy was one of the things that I loved to read when I was a young teen. So it was a nice escape. But yeah, I did find heavier themes. So the whole story is these dual sets of sisters and there's a swamp that factors in the story and the swamp is basically a metaphor for all those festering emotions you know like the guilt and the shame and the regret and how if you let those things take hold if you let them hang around they'll just poison everything it's like I was saying about middle grade emotional truth is at the heart of middle grade so even if I'm writing about fantasy I can still be talking about some of those things that kids are trying to work out in their own lives, you know, how they feel and how to react to their emotions. So I absolutely think 
fantasy and sci-fi sometimes can be the most subversive genres of literature. I mean, you think about Star Trek and I don't know if you heard Whoopi Goldberg talk about how important that was to her as a child. She saw Uhura on the screen and it was the Mm. first black woman she had seen on television that wasn't a maid. Sci-fi and fantasy can be so liberating in that way. I know when I was a teenager and I was reading all that fantasy, when I think back about why, I think it was because I was bumping up against sexism in education, in my cultural spheres, my friends. It was really frustrating to me. You step into a fantasy book and that systemic sexism can be completely written out of the world. It's really liberating when societal bias that you experience every day is just all of a sudden gone. And I think that helps us imagine a better world for ourselves when we can see it in the fiction that we read. I think, too, that when you're working with fantasy, so many elements of reality and research can come into play. You can turn it on its head if you want. You can switch things up. I wrote Given to the Sea because I read a lot of medical science nonfiction. I'd like to read about different kind of medical issues. I don't know why. This is just something that is part of me. I had read about um, Huntington's disease, which is a disorder in the brain. It was called the dancing sickness. The sufferers, they don't know before we had gene testing. You didn't know if you had it or not because the breakdown didn't start until you were in your 20s. You just didn't know until you started to spasm and lose control of your body. You had a 50% chance. If you were a parent, one parent had it, you had a 50% chance of having it. So you you lived with that like axe over your head for your whole teen years and everything. For your whole life. Wow. I just thought that was so fascinating. And that complete nonfiction medical information is part of what inspired my fantasy and built the world of given to the sea. And so I think it's interesting how much true research can actually lead and build into a fantasy world. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Three Pennies, Okay, in which a foster child moving through the system is on the hunt for her birth mother. So this is a little different. It is an issue book in a lot of ways, but it is uh, contemporary and set here in the United States. So what brought you to the story? This book was a joy for me to write. It was my fourth book. It just stands out from everything I've ever written before. Everything I've ever written before, you know, you wrestle with to fit the pieces together and you wrestle with in revision. And this book just clicked. I laughed while I was writing it. I cried with my characters. It just was so much fun. It holds a special place in my heart just because it was such a joy to write. I don't know if I'll ever get another book like that. (laughs) Maybe every fourth or every fifth book will feel like that, but it really stood out as far as process goes, actually came to me over several years. But I think the trigger was I was teaching ESL at an elementary school and there was a kid there and we'll call her Kate. Kate was a monolingual student, meaning she spoke only Spanish. She had come from Central America. I was the only teacher who could speak Spanish to her. I was a teacher who came alongside her and helped her learn her very first words of English And then helped see her through the transition years when she needed me less and less and less. So we developed a real rapport. She trusted me. And I think her second year at the school, she came to me for the first time and told me about violence that was happening in her home. 
And it's a really tough decision. I don't know if any of the listeners out there have been an educator or someone who's mandated to report to social services. Mm -hmm. It's a really Mm -hmm. tough thing to do. You know that families are at risk when you do this. You want to know that you're doing the right thing when you call in. So I reported it to social services. And as it was the first infraction, I don't think the process went very far. The following year, she came back another time and told me a similar story about violence in the home. And this time she was really scared and she was really scared for her older sister. I reported it again. And I came home that time because I was so upset about it. I didn't want her to just be abandoned into the system. I didn't want her to just be with strangers. I came home to my wife and I said, okay, you've heard me talk about Kate. You've heard me talk about her over the years, how I worry about her. Can we put some extra beds in our extra bedrooms and bring her and her sister into our home? And we talked about it and we agreed, yeah, you know, we'll fast track the process however we need to. The sad part of that story is that social services was never able to get permanent resolution while the violent person was out of the home for a period of time, that person came back into the home. I watched how that affected this girl and it was just devastating. I felt like I had lost her trust because she had asked me to help her and I did everything I was legally allowed to do, but it just broke my heart because I couldn't make it better. I couldn't fix it. I began looking into the system, into the foster system. And I learned about all these kids who age out of the foster system, just American kids who turn 18, 19, and they have no family. No one ever adopted them. That also broke my heart. The more I looked into the system, the more empathy I had for those social workers who are working within a system that is in place to protect children. But sometimes the system is standing in the way of what's best for that kid. I definitely empathized with them being a teacher and feeling the same constraints. Sometimes the system is standing in the way of what's best, what those kids need. That's really what brought me to the story. My heart breaking for this one kid in particular and for all those kids in general. I've always worked with the older range of kids because I was in fifth grade through uh, seniors, but for a long time, the youngest kids I saw were seventh graders. I mean, obviously abuse happens at those levels, but those kids are at least able to speak it. They have the ability to communicate that. I would be down at the elementary because I would go down to the elementary in my district and, and work down there. Sometimes there would be conversations among the staff. They would know. They would know that there was something going on. And like you said, you know, they would report it. They would do their due diligence. Things would not work out the way it feels like they were supposed to. My first few years of being in the school system, I had um, a situation where there were students who were living in a home where the Humane Society had removed their animals because they declared it unfit for dogs. But the kids could still stay. Oh, that's so hard. The system needs some work. Yeah. So I was really writing about that systemic problem when we have adults who are desperately wishing for children Mm -hmm. and we have children who are desperately wishing for a family. 
and you understand why the protections are in place, why the delays are in place, but you also just want everybody who needs love to be able to get it. To end off, why don't you talk about where listeners can find you online? So the best way to find me is just to go to my website and it's just my name, melaniecrowder.com. And I've got links there to my Twitter. My Twitter's Melanie A. Crowder. My Instagram's the same. And then on Facebook, I'm Melanie Crowder Author. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Mindy. This has been a great conversation. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.